The Athletic. When you make a CV, do you mention you're under investigation? Or do you just put that you're a World Cup winner? Spain coach Jorge Bilda was sacked after the fallout from Luis Rubiales' kiss. But just a month later, he's the new manager of the Morocco women's team. So how did the ex-Spain boss get a new job after the World Cup scandal? I'm Sophie Penny, and from The Athletic, this is Full Time Europe. I'm with the Athletic Spanish football reporter Laia Cervello Herrero, joining us from Barcelona. Laia, having covered this scandal in depth, how did this news make you feel? At the beginning, I thought it was a bad joke of somebody just putting that on Twitter just for fun. And then I realized that it was serious and I was like, how could that happen? After all that uh, happened with Rubiales and him just backing uh, Rubiales, I think I think it just has something that shouldn't have happened at least that soon. A lot of people were definitely shocked by that. The Athletics reporter Jacob Whitehead is is also with us. He's been getting his Moroccan contacts book out for the show, haven't you, Jacob? Yes, I have. It's been a busy few weeks for Moroccan football with the announcement of the Men's World Cup in 2030 and now this appointment for the women's team. It's uh, lurching really from one thing to the other. A lot to discuss for sure. Great to have you both with us and hello to you listening as well. Later, we'll be chatting with The Athletic's Liverpool reporter, Kiva O'Neill, after Liverpool lost their third Merseyside derby in a row at Anfield. But first, let's talk about Jorge Bilda becoming Morocco manager. Laia, we'll come to you first. Could you perhaps explain for people who haven't been following why this was so controversial what is he under investigation for? How is he linked to this Rubiales scandal? It was very controversial, first of all, precisely because it is under investigation, as you were saying, for coercion. So it's something very serious. His statement uh, to the judge surprised even the judge because he was giving his opinion with this authoritative attitude he always has. He always has in everything. And it is surprising that a national team wants to get his services when he's under investigation and when he has been questioned as a coach for a year. I mean, this is something that is not new. And if you watch the women's national team playing now without him in charge, uh, they play the same or even better than they did during the World Cup. So I think it's something that it's very controversial and surprised, at least in Spain, it was very surprising. And he's being investigated because he supported Rubiales, is that right? Yeah, and because he tried to just pursue uh, Jennifer Hermoso and his and her family to say that uh, it was something that it was mutual, that that she was okay with it, and it's something that is very sad because when you see something like this, like this, even if he is your friend, you have to support the victim, and he was all the way like on the Rubiales side, so it's something that. Obviously, it's a crime, so he has to just deal with the justice in Spain now. And as you said, this isn't new, is it? The complaints around Vilda go back to before the World Cup, don't they? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, the type of the iceberg was after last year's Euros. The players were already starting to get 
fed up with uh, being coached by him. It's true that uh, they were coming from something much worse, which was uh, Ignacio Quereda. Uh, he was a bad coach. And on top of that, he committed humiliations against them. Uh, we have an article that explains some of them. I think it uh, it is worth a, a reading if you haven't done it yet, because uh, when you read that, it's brutal. So, yeah, at first, I think the players saw that Bilda's way of doing things was a little different, but it didn't take long for them to realize that he wasn't enough to coach a team whose quality was growing exponentially. Uh, one of the things that most annoyed the players uh, who uh, I think already had serious doubts about him was when before last year's, last year's Euros, the Federation renewed him. That meant that whatever happened during the Euros would be good for the Federation. It was a way of saying that whatever he did was okay with them. I think the players complained about training sessions that weren't profe- weren't like usual from a professional team. He didn't believe in psychologists in the team, nor nutritionists, nor did they have enough physiotherapists. Uh, moreover, they still did not watch any video of the opponents before important mat- matches. They did not watch any video before playing against England last year. I think uh, this is something very, very serious. That uh, was the the straw that broke the camel's back and one of the reasons that led 15 players to say that they had enough, that if their federation didn't change anything, they didn't want to go back to the national team. Hearing all that, it sounds like a miracle that they won the World Cup. Jacob, let's bring you in. Can you explain the state of Moroccan women's football and did they need a new coach? Were they very desperate I mean Reno Pedros took them to the knockout stages didn't they in their in their first world cup was he leaving anyway was he pushed out what position were they in before they made this appointment so this is what's kind of interesting about it from a Moroccan perspective is that it really is a team on the up kind of at this world cup it was their world cup debut they're in a group which included Colombia who were kind of one of the surprise packages of the tournament, seeing how good they were, and also Germany, who were one of the favourites going in. They managed to qualify from that. So despite being thrashed, really, by Germany in their first game, they had two narrow 1-0 wins over South Korea and Colombia, making the knockout stages. And that was massive for Moroccan women's football because it's not historically had loads and loads of investment in it, although that is changing and we'll come on to that and the importance of that. But it was a really good result for them and one which was slightly unexpected coming in. Last July, they reached a final of Women's AFCON as well, so that's another good result for them. And so kind of on the face of it, from the outside, you're saying, why does Pedros need to leave? He has an incredibly good CV before going into the Morocco job. The main piece of context to this is just over the last five, ten years, how much investment has gone into Moroccan football across both men's and women's teams. So there's built this massive complex in Rabat, the capital, named after the king, Mohammed VI, and it's kind of based on the France's Clairefontaine Academy, and it's meant to be kind of one of the best facilities, not just in Africa, but worldwide, and they've stated these ambitious claims. So, for example, they want 90,000 women's players by next year. And so I guess you've kind of got to put all of these decisions which Morocco's FA are making against this absolutely massive ambition they have Of course, that means they aren't always going to be making the right decisions. This isn't me defending the appointment of Vilda, but it's just a context as to why for Morocco FA sort of are taking these, what is kind of a massive risky swing, which seems pretty 
inappropriate. So Morocco had great results in the World Cup. Has anything happened since that would make them make this dramatic change? So they had two games against Zambia, who of course also qualified for the World Cup. Brave put on some good performances there and Morocco lost both of them pretty comprehensively, both at home, one in Rabat, one in Casablanca. The first game was 2-0. Maybe you're like, okay, it's a defeat. But then the second game was a big 6-2 defeat. I think two Zambian players got hat-tricks. And that was two weeks before Vilda was appointed. So I think there is a world in which, seeing as Morocco have these ambitions, they want to not just be the best team in Africa, but properly join the top tier of European nations that's kind of not just in women's football but in men's football as well there's a world that two weeks before Vilda gets appointed that they kind of got cold feet and were like we need to upgrade despite Pedrosa's records over the previous years they've decided they want a new coach but do we have any sense from either of you how they came to choose Vilda and whether Vilda had any other offers or Morocco had any other offers Talking about Villa, uh, it was like the only offer he had. There were rumours about him coaching Saudi Arabia. And I know for good that he hadn't any agent, for example, before uh, the World Cup. And after everything that ha- that happened, he started looking for, for, for one. He was desperate to get himself somewhere because he felt he had enough of a reputation to do it after winning a World Cup because sadly, yes, he is a World Cup uh, winner, even though his interventions to get there have been minimal. And I think even cost us not to see Spain play as well as they could have played. So he took the first and only offer he had. Yeah, I mean, just kind of from the Moroccan perspective, it was a big surprise to Pedros that he, that he was leaving. I mean, he was very vocal on Twitter about it in the days after. He was kind of saying, the book closes, I'm disappointed not to continue my mission, but the future belongs to us, I hope soon to be reliving these days. And very active in the retweets. Uh, somebody said, Jorge Vilda announced his coach, one step forward, ten steps back, and Pedros was sharing that sentiment. So you can see how unhappy he is. From speaking to Morocco FA, the sense was this was kind of more of a push out very much than, than him leaving, that this was the end of the cycle after the World Cup, after AFCON. And when they realised that Jorge Vilda might be available, like Laia just said, he does have that World Cup winner on his CV. They're opportunistic. They want to get Morocco's kind of brand out there. And this is a way to kind of, for them, they think we've got a World Cup winning coach, we're ambitious this is what we should be doing. He's the outstanding candidate. One person described to me on a call as it being like Carlo Ancelotti going to coach the Ivory Coast. Kind of that was their perspective on it. And when I was asking about how did his record at Spain and all the problems there affect the decision, it was something which didn't seem to have been considered in depth. It seemed to be more of a kind of that was an internal Spanish FA issue and it's not our place to meddle, which was surprising statement and one which I think is probably demonstrably false if you dive into it. He is not absolutely a, a, a good coach and probably if they have asked for references about him, I doubt that many people could speak well of Bilda as a coach. He's a guy who can work for you in a, in a at a youth level, probably, but not as a coach of a senior national team, I think. Uh, the players were 
often the ones who organized the training sessions because they felt they were insufficient for, for them. Uh, the problem Villa had probably was that Spanish football, women's football, grew so much and so fast that it left him in the lurch during the, the World Cup. He was brave uh, in some decisions and he did make some changes. But after talking to some people after the World Cup, you could tell that not all of the decisions were, were made by, by him. Sometimes it were, they were like the the players, for example, with Katakoy, for example, being the the goalkeeper. From what I've been told, it was something more requested by the central defenders than his own decision. I think this is very this is very lame. He didn't communicate uh, with the players, and you can be a good coach if you are not talking to to the players. He didn't speak to Misa to tell her that in the middle of the tournament she wasn't going to be the Spain's goalkeeper anymore. She found out in the pre-match uh, chat also Katakoy. Alexia Putellas, he made her play, I think it was 62 minutes or something like that in a friendly match against Panama before the, the World Cup when she had played very little with Barca after returning from her injury. He's not the best managing a, a group of, of players. And even Luis Cortez, who was on the verge of signing uh, with Morocco's coach, decided not to sign and uh, just keep on not having a, a job because he didn't want to work with uh, Jorge Villa. And it was not only because uh, Jennifer Mososki. So I think everybody in Spain knows that he is not a good coach. I think this is what it's potentially quite worrying about because Morocco is not at the same point yet as Spain when it comes to women football. It's not as entrenched. It's still much more emergent despite this investment. And so when you bring in a figure as divisive as Vilda into a squad which is still very much trying to make its ascent, trying to kind of get its seat at the table, you kind of really threaten, not just in the short term for the cycle, but its long-term prospects as well. You're listening to Full Time Europe with Sophie Penny. Spain had all those Barcelona players who had the experience to know what to demand of a very professional setup. In terms of the personnel from Morocco, we know that Tottenham's Rosella Ayan plays for Morocco. Is there that same level of experience to demand that professional environment and to say something when it's not right? I mean, it's going to change quite a lot probably over the next four years. You've kind of got to split it to an extent because within Morocco, they're trying to develop a lot of players locally at this new academy where you imagine that Vilda's influence is kind of going to be drawn much more upon that side. But then also kind of as a team, it really heavily kind of draws on the wider diaspora, which is kind of across the whole of Europe and including Spanish-based players who probably will have seen Vilda's kind of tactics firsthand and will kind of inevitably go in a lot more wary about what might be happening. The players have been put in quite a difficult position kind of publicly. We've not seen them talk about it because a new coach is coming in you can't immediately be critical you see a lot thanking Pedros on, on social media and it's set against here in Moroccan media domestically who have been applauding this decision as a sign of ambition and a sign that Morocco can attract top coaching talent which is obviously very different to the way that kind of mainland Europe has tended to see this. That's really interesting has that been a very different reaction in the media in in Spain and the Spanish players Laia? 
Now I think uh, between the players, entourage and journalists, everybody sees him as a favor from Morocco to, to Spain. It is worth remembering that Spain and Morocco are going to organize and host the 2030 uh, World Cup together. So I don't know for sure, but it sounds very much like a favor that Morocco has done to the Federation to save itself problems. And I find it very regrettable because you can't just take a decision like that because you just want to give a favor to, to another country. Where do they go from here, starting with Morocco? How do you think the players are going to approach this? How could the fans approach this? I mean, we have some experience, don't we, Laia, from Spain in terms of people potentially supporting the team, but not the manager. How do you think this is going to move forward in, in Morocco, Jacob? And Laia, what can they learn from what Spain have learned? I think it's a really difficult one for the players in terms of they've been riding this momentum for the last year after AFCON, after the World Cup. And all of a sudden they're kind of being asked to adjust and all indications from Vilder that he's not going to change. Morocco players are kind of going to have to adjust. I think it's quite, you kind of almost feel as the wider football community are going to have to try and kind of raise awareness of it, kind of talk about it because it's something which they might not necessarily have the platform to talk about themselves and it's not as big a football market for the majority of the year as Spain and so there's kind of a concern that lots of things might be happening slightly under the radar putting back Moroccan's football until kind of it next raises its head at the next major tournament that's the concern. Yeah I would say that probably now we will see like what kind of manager is Jorge Vilda because he had a lot of protection but in Spain because he's the son of Angel Vilda who is like an historic member of the Spanish national team, also, also uh, a historic uh, member of FC Barcelona. Uh, but it's something that it will not happen in, in Morocco. So I can imagine him uh, falling much earlier than he did in, in Spain. Uh, but I think it will be just interesting to see how uh, he will do it uh, without that kind of big players. I think they saved him so many times and now probably he will realise that he's not that good manager also. So I think that's that's what go, what, what's going to happen. I hope that the players will be able to voice their concerns if, if they have them, even behind the scenes. Thank you so much for joining me. Laia Saveo, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, Jacob Whitehead. Thank you very much. You can follow Morocco and Jorge Wilder's journey on The Athletic. Next up, back to the UK. You're listening to Full-Time Europe from The Athletic. Liverpool could have gone top of the WSL, but instead they let history repeat itself. Three losses out of three in the Merseyside derby at Anfield. This time it was 1-0, Megan Finnegan scoring again for Everton. The Athletic's Liverpool writer Kiva O'Neill is with me now to figure out why Liverpool can't win the Merseyside derby at Anfield. Great to have you with us, Kiva. What was that atmosphere like in the stadium? Do you know what? Heading into the game, it was just so nice. Like the vibe was great. Liverpool and Everton fans, obviously excited to get into the ground and sort of see where these two teams are at. Obviously, kind of on different ends of the spectrum. But also, Everton fans were in the cop alongside Liverpool fans. So that made it really interesting because it's not very often you'll see Everton fans in the cop. Maybe years ago when you know fans would be everywhere, but not as much nowadays. So yeah, seeing Everton celebrate at the end. 
at the cop end was a bit bizarre. Obviously, the crowd did have something to cheer about from the Liverpool side very early on with Missy Bokerns scoring an early goal that was later disallowed for offside. And I know Matt Beard's been very vocal about that after the game, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, he said it was costly and, you know, very much looking at it, it looked close. And then when you see the replay, it kind of does look like she's onside for the goal. Uh, Missy Bokerns and like, what a moment for her to score in front of the cop. You know, she's a scouser, local girl in the team. That was a moment and obviously it's taken away from her and then seeing the replays and it looking like it was onside is pretty heartbreaking for her, for Liverpool, because I do think that start was electric. They just, Everton didn't know what to do. Liverpool were pressing them like player to player and, you know, Liverpool were all up on Everton's grill and it just felt like they didn't know what to do. And then that goal would have really set the tone for the game. But with it being ruled out, you just felt like in that moment, the momentum then shifted back to Everton and obviously Matt Beard after the game was yeah he was obviously really disappointed as was the Liverpool players because I did feel like that was the moment for them they needed to get a goal early in the derby to almost set this right we're not going to lose this one and obviously they did that but then it's you know ruled out and yeah the officiating was obviously commented on by Matt Beard after the game. Was he saying that they need VAR in the WSL? Because I know you've been investigating this for The Athletic, looking into how much it would cost, things like that. So was that what Matt Beard was calling for? And also, do you think it's realistic, given all the research you've been doing? I think, yeah, he was saying that he's sick to death of it and how embarrassing it is that, you know, these decisions are still a mistake still getting made. And, you know, when I did that piece, it was sort of like chatting to loads of different people about, like, whether actually VAR is something that is going to happen eventually and going to come into the women's game more readily because you have, obviously, in Champions League and different stages of, like, you know, the Nations League and that kind of thing, but it's it's not something that's there every game. And even goal line technology, and there was a moment when Kerry Holland, I mean, it bounced out rather than in, but had it bounced in and bounced back out, you know, that would have been another... Um, moment of contention in the match and you know we've, we've seen those decisions before so I think for it's just yeah the comparison from the men's game to the women's game you know a lot of people just moaning about VAR and different decisions and then the women's game just don't have that privilege really um, and I think it would definitely improve it but you know speaking to different people a lot of the time it's about you know support and refereeing now and referees coming through and that pathway and making sure you know you're getting the best referees and putting the funding into that or does the funding from clubs go into you know making sure pitches aren't frozen and having under soil heating and you know it's so much um stuff that needs funding and needs financing that how can you sign off on VAR which is going to cost however much it's interesting because obviously Liverpool were playing at Anfield so they would have had you know, VAR is already, like, the systems are all kind of built in there, so it wouldn't necessarily, it would just cost, I guess, in terms of the people doing it on the day, and the officials. But at, like, Prenton Park, would Liverpool, who obviously, you know, rent that from Tramia for their games, would they want to then pay to install VAR and, you know, different technology when it's not their home? That's another side of it as well. There's just so many different sides and angles, and you kind of, like, you know... These players deserve it. The managers are going to keep asking for it. But whether we'll see it, it still remains an unknown. 
I suppose it's about where do you put those resources and you have limited resources. So so what do you put them towards? And Liverpool have been investing in their women's team, haven't they? They've they've gone back to Melwood this season and they saw two great results at the start of the season, which you might think could be down to that move, you know, beating Arsenal and and Villa. So it must be an odd scenario for them having invested so much and got these two big wins, but they still can't win that Merseyside derby. What is it about Everton that they just can't get past? Everton were always have always been, you know, other than Liverpool winning back-to-back WSL titles 2013, 2014, Everton have mostly always been the better team. Growing up, it was Everton that I'd heard of. I didn't know Liverpool had a team. I think it's ingrained in them that they just win the derby, even though they've had a difficult start of the season where Liverpool have had a, an incredible one, a gleeful one, you know, a joyful one, beating Arsenal, beating Villa, coming into this game with real confidence, like this is the time that Liverpool win the derby at Anfield. And then, you know, I think seeing those players walk through the mix zone at the end of the game, they look much more disappointed than they did the last couple of times they played there. It just felt like this one was for the taking and failing to do that and failing to go top of the league as well, you know, Three wins from three. Was within touching distance. Yeah, and that would have been like a shockwave. You know, Liverpool at top of the league. And then what happens then? Does that build into, well, you know, Liverpool and now the team that are unbeaten have won every game. What about when those players were coming through the mix zone? Could they put their finger on tactically what wasn't working for them on the pitch or, or anything on the pitch that Everton did so well that Liverpool couldn't handle? I think it was once Everton got to grips with Liverpool's press. It just feels like Taylor Hines on the left and Emma Coivisto on the right give Liverpool so much going forward because obviously it's like basically a back five that alternates into a back three with obviously Gemma Bonner in the middle and then you've got Jenna Clark and Grace Fisk either side of her. And most of the game, you'll just see Taylor Hines on the wing and Emma Coivisto on the wing. So they're just wing backs essentially. And Everton struggled with that early on, but then they seemed to just sort of get to grips with it. And Liverpool's midfield felt like it was doing something and it was working and Kerry Holland kept picking the ball up and, you know, when she, um, I think she wins the ball back and has a shot and it just felt like, yeah, she's in the mood here. And then that mood just slowly dampened down a little bit and Everton slowly but surely started, you know, playing their game, which, you know, wasn't an exhilarating game at all, you know, from either team, but it just felt like, Everton just knew what to do and obviously the goal comes from a set piece and other than that they didn't really have you know too many chances where Liverpool should have been really worried Um, but then Liverpool didn't necessarily have you know some really good chances either so it just yeah it fell a bit flat and Everton were able to sort of just take advantage of that. It is a shame when such a showcase game does fall flat isn't it and I was wondering who this game is an advert for because Liverpool are putting this on at Anfield they'll probably have new fans who haven't been to see them before but this showcase is becoming more of an advert for Everton isn't it is that something that's going to be quite difficult for them trying to get new fans on board I guess like losing the derby is just something Liverpool fans aren't really used to on the men's side and then on the women's side it's completely the opposite which is difficult to deal with. And I feel like that's why those players were just so disappointed. They felt like this was their moment to do this. And like, what would the reaction be like? They haven't felt that. Obviously, they haven't beat Everton for a long time. So, 
you know, what would that reaction on social media be like? But what would it be like in the stadium? You know, what would the stay behind be like? What would, you know, would fans be singing You Never Walk Alone and they, you know, be under the cop with them? And, you know, they haven't had that moment yet. And I think in a way it's them not having that moment isn't great, but then it's still something that they want and will go searching after. I think in terms of playing at Anfield, it can't just be, you know, this one-off that Liverpool and Everton play at Anfield, then they play at Goodison Park in the alternative, um, you know, the reverse fixture. And then that's it. They don't play at the the men's stadiums anymore. And I think playing there more often would give fans that option to be like, oh, well, I'll go to the game. And, you know, just having that knowledge of, oh, yeah, Liverpool play uh, as a whole club, you know, Liverpool women and Liverpool men more often, I think, would be good. And the same goes for Goodison Park, even though Walton Hall Park is obviously a lot closer, where Prenton Park's obviously on the Whirl, so you have to, you know, go under a tunnel to get there. So, yeah, I think that sort of just repeating that and just being around and that win will eventually come. And when it does, it's going to be, you know, such a special day for those Liverpool players who are a part of that team and obviously the fans who've just waited and waited because yesterday it just felt like, you know, there's a chance Liverpool win this game and then it fizzled out in the same way it always does against Everton. Um, Even though at Goodison Park last season, you know, Liverpool probably should have won that game. I think it was a draw in the end. So, you know, they've had moments and they're getting there, but it just it's about that sort of that next sort of phase now. And you beat Arsenal, you beat Aston Villa. It just felt like this was the time to do it. Hopefully for Liverpool next time, they'll be the ones celebrating in the cop end, not Everton. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Kiva. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. For more on everything we've been chatting about and to read our weekly full-time column, head to The Athletic. You can sign up today for an offer of just £1.99 a month for 12 months at theathletic.com WSL. In a few seconds when the episode ends, please do leave us a rating and a review. And don't forget to follow Full-Time Europe on your podcast feed. You can send in any thoughts or questions on Twitter to at The Athletic FC or direct to me at S-P-E-N-N-E-Y 4. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Full Time Europe, part of the Athletic Football Podcast Network. The producer was Sophie Penny and the executive producer was Abby Patterson. To discover and listen to other great athletic podcasts just like this one, including our brand new daily football briefing, search for The Athletic on Apple, Spotify and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. The Athletic.